Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 63. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 4 through 7 in the book of Samuel and follow with a consideration of the Bechdel test, perjuration, and who really qualifies to be a Philistine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. In the no-holds-barred match between Israel and the Philistines, it is clear within two verses that Israel is outgunned and outmatched. The first round at Ebenezer is a complete rout with 4,000 casualties on the Israelite side. So the elders, stinging from the defeat, decide to go full nuclear and bring out the Ark of the Covenant. So, quote, it may come into our midst and rescue us from the hands of our enemies. Chofni and Pinchas, Eli's sons, accompany the Ark from Shiloh, and when the Israelites see the holy procession, they shout for joy at what they expect is impending victory. The Philistines hear the uproar and somehow hear that it's the Ark of the Covenant that has uplifted the loser Israelites, and they are fearful of the Ark, but they fight nonetheless, and win. The Ark falls into the hands of the enemy. 30,000 more Israelites are dead, among them Eli's sons, Chofni and Pinchas. Word gets back to Shiloh of the terrible tragedy, a tragedy of indescribable proportion. All the humanity and all the as soon as Eli hears this news of the Ark and the defeat and his sons, he falls off his chair and dies, and receives the appropriate epitaph, and he judged Israel for 40 years. And when the news spreads, Pinchas's wife goes into premature labor, births a son, and then dies. The mother calls the boy Ikavod, or honorless, because honor has left Israel, and with taking of the ark and the deaths of her husband and father-in-law. And the interlude that follows moves the action from the lands of Israel to the city-states of the Philistines, where the ark is taken as a trophy, first to the temple of Dagon in Ashdod, where Dagon mysteriously topples from his seat during the night. Specifically, his head and palms are found separated from the rest of the body and prostrate before the ark. The folks in Ashdod are freaked out by the incident and want the Ark out of their city, so after some deliberation between the Philistine potentates, the Ark is moved to Gat, where the hijinks continues. This time, all the people of Gat are afflicted with hemorrhoids. So the potentates meet again and decide to send the Ark to Ekron, which is soon afflicted with hemorrhoids and death. This is the last straw, or hemorrhoid. So it's decided the Ark will have to return to Israel, but in the meantime, they leave the Ark in an open field outside the municipal boundaries of the Philistine city-states, and there it sits for seven months. Because as the Philistine priests declare, you cannot just ding-dong ditch the Ark of the Covenant. A fitting guilt offering must be made to seek forgiveness for the offense given. They must fashion golden images of the hemorrhoids and the mice that plague the people, and have a cart built from scratch, and yoke it to two cows who have never pulled a plow, and place the ark upon it, along with the golden hemorrhoids and mice. So let it be written. So let it be done. So the cows head off toward Beit Shemesh, and you can imagine that moment. Reapers are working in the fields of Yoshua the Beit Shemeshite, and they look up and they see two unaccompanied cows pulling a wagon with the Ark of the Covenant on it. Can you imagine the surprise and the perplexity? Here are the most coveted religious item, which had been taken as booty in the harrowing defeat almost a year ago, and it's just appearing out of nowhere on a wagon. One doesn't know whether to cheer up and jump for joy or run for your life and call the hazmat team. 
So the reapers run and call the Levites who unload the ark onto a rock in Yehoshua's field, and the reapers slaughter the cows and use the wood as fuel for the near offering of thanks. But the hijinks continues, despite the return on the near offering. But this time it's no joke when tens of thousands of Beit Shemeshites die because, quote, they had looked into the ark of the Lord. So they put out a call to the people of Kiryati Arim, who sent some sanctified men to fetch the ark to successfully relocate it to the house of Avinadav, where it stays for 20 years. Shmuel takes the opportunity of the ark's return to chastise the people and trundle out the old saw about idolatry and fidelity to God and what happens when you stray from the righteous path, blah, 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 blah. And he concludes with a nationwide invitation to come to Mitzpeh, where he offers to pray on the nation's behalf and provide an opportunity for folks to repent. Meanwhile, the Philistines hear that all of Israel are gathering at Mitzpeh and they decide to attack. But Shmuel offers a near offering and God smites the Philistines so resoundingly that, quote, they no longer came into Israelite country. And like all the judges before him, once the crisis has passed, Shmuel returns to his day job of judging the people, going from year to year in circuit to Beit El, Gilgal, Mitzpah, and Ramah. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. In the comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For, Alison Bechdel had one of her characters voice what has come to be known as the Bechdel test for movies. The test has three criteria. Number one, the movie has to have at least two women in it who, number two, talk to each other about, number three, something besides a man. I've attached the 1985 comic at The Next Jew and at the show pages on Facebook and Google+. This test is meant to pinpoint gender bias, or conversely, female friendliness in movies and other works of fiction. In so doing, the Bechdel test highlights female characters who have depth and texture, as opposed to those who are cast as, say, ornaments, targets, or objects of desire. The Bechdel test has also been employed in Swedish cinemas and by the Scandinavian cable TV channel Viasat as a supplementary rating for films, along with the usual R, PG, and whatevers. If such a test existed for the Tanakh, it might read like this. Number one, that the story has to have at least two non-Israelites in it who, number two, talk to each other about three, something besides the Israelites. This story about the taking of the Ark almost passes the biblical Bechdel test. This portion has many Philistines in it, two whole chapters worth. We have the citizens of Ashdod and Ekron converse, as do the Philistine potentates, priests, and magicians about what to do about the Ark, which is, I suppose, a proxy for the Israelites, although it's arguably not. And God does manifest in the story when he gives the Philistines hemorrhoids, and he is referred to in talk about the Ark. But at no point are the Philistines worried about what the Israelites are doing or what they're wearing, or if the Israelites are going to ask them out on a date. None of that. So... I'm going to award this story a qualified thumbs up on the biblical Bechdel test. Good job. So now that we've established the depth and texture of the protagonists in this story, what else do we know about the Philistines? Well, if one goes by the Oxford English Dictionary, a Philistine is a person who is hostile or indifferent to culture and the arts. The usage of the word in this fashion dates back to the early 19th century, according to the self-same text, and comes from a confrontation between university students and townspeople in Jena, Germany in the late 17th century. A sermon on the conflict quoted, quote, The Philistines are upon you, from Judges chapter 16, which led to an association between the boorish, ill-educated townspeople and those hostile to culture. But if we look to the archaeological evidence, we cannot help but conclude that pejoration is at play again. 
Pejuration, if you recall episode 3, in the early chapter of Genesis, came up in the context of the mark of Cain, a sign which was designed to protect Cain, but became synonymous with stain or stigma. Pejuration switches the positive into a negative, or a more common semantic move than its opposite amelioration, which switches the negative into positive. So a Philistine presence in Canaan goes back to a time before the departure of Israel from Egypt, because golden calves notwithstanding, if you were leaving Egypt, a much more logical route to take from Egypt to Canaan would be along the Mediterranean coast. Just keep the water to your left and keep walking, and eventually you'll hit Canaan. But as Exodus 13 recounts, even before the first whiff of idolatry, quote, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, which indeed is nearer. For God said to himself, lest the people regret it when they see war and return to Egypt. So who were the Philistines? Although the references to the Philistines or land of the Philistines in Genesis and Exodus are clearly anachronistic, the Philistine presence in what we would call the Gaza Strip goes back at least to the 12th century BCE when the Aegean-based sea peoples attacked Egypt and other Mediterranean coastal peoples during the reigns of kings Merneptah and Ramses III. Assyrian sources refer to them as Pilishti or Palashtu. In the Tanakh, the Philistines are supposed to have originated in Kaftor or Crete, although there is no archaeological evidence to support this association. The Philistines set up a pentapolis, or five city-states, which consisted of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gat, and Ekron. It is not clear whether it was done despite the local inhabitants or with the tacit approval of the Egyptians, but their material culture, especially pottery, albeit locally sourced and produced, had strong connections to Mycenaean wares discovered in Cyprus. The clearest sign of Philistine presence is from what archaeologists call Philistine pottery, whose chief types are buff-colored wine mixing bowls called craters, beer jugs with spouted strainers, cups, and stirrup vases with a whitewash or slip on which are painted reddish, purple, or black geometrical designs, or metope-like panels with stylized swans preening themselves. The Philistines also mastered metalworking, as evidenced by the remains of smelting furnaces around Ashdod. Ritual objects found in Ashdod and Gezer also closely resemble objects from the Aegean, but the Philistine gods have Semitic names. The Tanakh reports that there was a temple to Dagon in Gaza and Ashdod, and to Baal Zvuv in Ekron. Herodotus locates a temple to Astarte in Ashkelon. A Philistine temple discovered at Tel Kassil, built around 1150 BCE and rebuilt several times since, also shows Aegean and Canaanite influence. And let's not forget the commercial routes developed by the Philistines throughout the Mediterranean, or the quality tableware they produced, or the volume of olive oil they exported throughout the ancient Near East. So, given the archaeological evidence, the Philistines were anything but indifferent to culture and the arts. But like Uncle Angus, who built a bar with his bare hands, planing the wood, sanding, staining it, nailing it, putting his sweat and blood into it, did they call him Angus the bar builder? No. And the fence outside, aye, he built that too. He shaped the wood, dug the holes, measured and planted the posts himself. Did they call him Angus the fence erector? No. That boat outside, lad, aye, he built that himself too. He chopped down the tree, dried and warped the wood, nailed it and tarred it with his bare hands. But did they call him Angus the boat maker? No. But he buggered one sheep, laddie. One sheep! <laughs> The same is true of the Philistines, whose cultural achievements were many and manifold, who also built and plowed and traded. But because of their run-in with the clod-hopping hill people of Judea, they were condemned to be Philistines. Aye, it's a crying shame, laddie. A crying shame indeed. 
like what you heard today, tell a friend. Send them an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or you could do the social media thing and like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or you could leave a kind word in the comments section at thenextjew.com. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store. Or find TanakhCast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a kind word there. It's a small thing, really, but it will help me and other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 64 when we continue with the book of Samuel chapters 8 through 11. 